Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and all other lovers of the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Uh, what do we usually say next? Just Could, you Oh can... yeah, okay. Okay, I got it. This week we are bringing you one of our mini episodes and Tim is going to tackle with good cheer and happiness, Lamentations. Oh yeah. This is the lectionary text assigned for October 6th. It's going to be a little ladybug of an episode for you. Uh, But coming up in a few weeks, we have a locust swarm of an episode when we will bring in Dr. Rolf Jacobson to uh, help talk us through some Joel. But until then, we've got some little bugs to throw your way. So, Tim, what have you got for us today? Lamentations. Everybody's favorite book in the Bible. Indeed. We're going to look at a couple different passages here. Uh, One is the first six verses of the book, and then there's an excerpt from chapter three. This, I think, is the Revised Common Lectionary's attempt to grab the essence of the Book of Lamentations in two short excerpts. So the first excerpt, the, the opening verses of the book, represent the despair of Lamentations, while the second is about as close to hope as the book gets. I think a little bit of background on the book as a whole will help set these in context. The book is traditionally ascribed to the prophet Jeremiah, which is probably why the Revised Common Lectionary sandwiches this little section within the continuous series of Jeremiah readings. In the Christian Bible, Lamentations immediately follows the book of Jeremiah for the same reason. However, like most biblical books, these lament poems are actually anonymous, and it's historically unlikely that Jeremiah was actually their author. In the Jewish Bible, Lamentations is among the writings, one of the five scrolls that are read during annual festivals. Lamentations is appropriately read at Tishbaav, the annual remembrance of the destruction of the first Jerusalem temple in 586 BCE, as well as other subsequent Jewish losses. Each of this book's five chapters is a standalone poem, and the first four are alphabetic acrostics, where the first word of each verse begins with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The third poem, which we'll get a little bit of today in chapter 3, is even more structured. Each verse has three lines that begin with a Hebrew letter. So A-A-A, B-B-B, C-C-C, etc., or in Hebrew, Aleph, 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 Bet, 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 Gimel, 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 and so on. Many commentators have noted the irony that poetry about such a chaotic moment in Israel's history is given such an ordered structure. Mm. And maybe that is a good summary of the book as a whole, a search for some sort of order and reason in the midst of trauma and chaos. So let's take a little closer look at these two excerpts. The first one, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, opens the book and its first lament poem. Jerusalem is personified as a widow who's been abandoned by all on whom she depended. Her loved ones are gone. Her friends have betrayed her. She's utterly alone. The metaphor is unpacked in verses 3 to 6. The widow is Judah, and specifically Zion, that is Jerusalem. Many of her people have been taken into captivity. The nobility of the city is pictured marching to Babylon like starving deer, hobbling on shaky, spindly legs. And those left behind are among ruins. Instead of leading prayers, the priests can only stand and sigh. Significant theologically is verse 5. The enemies of Judah have triumphed. 
this verse says, only because Israel's own God is causing them to suffer because of their transgressions. The verb there, hogah, is a hithil form for those of you with some Hebrew training. It's a causative form, attributing this suffering to God's own intent. God has followed through on the threats that God made that persistent transgression would result in expulsion from the land, at least according to the theology of Deuteronomy. Now, since this is an acrostic poem, it seems weird to me to just look at the beginning few verses. Often poetry really drives toward an end, and the closing lines are often the kicker. And I think that's the case wait, here. Wait, wait, Tim, are you suggesting we add more to the lectionary text? Whoa, that's just radical for us. Well, you know, I'm a radical guy. <laughs> <laughs> so in this poem, that's what's going on here too. After lamenting with many tears the desolation of Jerusalem, this poem, chapter 1, ends with a plea. And starting in verse 20, it says, See, O Lord, how distressed I am, how my stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I've been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard how I was groaning with no one to comfort me. All my enemies heard of my trouble. They're glad that you have done it. Bring on the day that you've announced and let them be as I am. Let their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you've dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. So this is both an acceptance of responsibility for Judah's suffering and a call that God would still avenge their enemies. Do to them what you did to us. Now we'll come back to that. But first, the second excerpt is perhaps more well-known and comes from the middle of the third poem, verses 19 to 26. This poem starts off with a long list of the ways that God has afflicted the poet. A lot of it's shepherding imagery, and it's actually, as a side note, kind of fascinating the way that this poem contrasts with the other famous shepherd poem of the Bible, Psalm 23. So many of the wonderful things that God does for the poet there, God has done the exact opposite here, driving with a rod of anger, left to dwell in darkness, paths blocked and made crooked. Instead of restoring my nephesh, God makes my flesh and skin old and has broken my bones. It's a fascinating comparison, but it's not the part that we're focusing on this week. <laughs> now, after all of that, the poet sums it up in verses 19 and 20. When I think about this and I bring it to memory, literally, my neck descends within me. There's nice. that nephish word again. Nice. You might say, when I think about this, my heart sinks. But the next line is the turn. I bring this other thing to mind, and therefore I have hope, says the NRSV. The Hebrew word, ochil, is simpler and less abstract. As I bring this other reality to mind, I wait I hold on. I just keep going. God's chesed, God's loyalty remains even after all this affliction. God's mercy is renewed every morning. So the poet says, I wait and I keep waiting one morning at a time. Now I have to mention that this poem, chapter 3, just like the first one, concludes also with a plea for vengeance on Judah's enemies. So there's that. <laughs> but you know... Even though that feature gives me pause, it's also one of the things that makes these poems so real. For all their formal structure and whatnot, they remain authentic expressions of grief in response to trauma. There's despair, 
There's self-blame. There's God-blame. There's anger and vengeful words for one's enemies. There are glimmers of hope and a sense of just hanging on, taking it one day at a time. It's a well-ordered mess. And that's probably how I'd preach Lamentations. The Bible itself makes space, carved out, structured space for the mess of grief. It's not saying that you ought to feel this way or that way or need to use these words or those. It's a witness to the human response to trauma and as part of the holy canon, sanctifies grief like this. Hmm. These are texts that give us permission and indeed encouragement to be real with God even in our lowest moments. If you opt to preach these texts, my encouragement is to set them in their context of pain and grief. Too often the line about God's mercy being renewed every morning gets sort of Pollyannized, right? Isn't life great? Isn't God so good? What a beautiful morning. God's mercy is new every morning. But that line takes on a whole different tone when it's spoken from the depth of trauma. And one final preaching pitfall. This segment from chapter 3 is profound when spoken from a place of trauma. And your job as a preacher is to make that space and communicate the divine permission to speak truth from that place. But be careful about speaking these words into someone else's trauma. It can actually backfire and be damaging, re-traumatizing, to say to someone in their pain, don't worry, God's always faithful, God's mercy is new every morning. So utilize these powerful words with appropriate caution. But I, I trust that you all can handle it. Good luck with it. Thanks, Tim. I love that. I, there were a couple of phrases that you had that would make such great sermon titles, you know, the holiness of grief or a well-ordered mess, you know, that all of those would are preachable and lend themselves well to those signs right outside the church's window, right? <laughs> right. Well, for those of you who enjoyed this and want more, uh, be sure to head on over to iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts and look us up there. If you want past episodes or more information on our guest speakers, head over to firstreadingpodcast.com and you can find more information there. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Happy preaching. Or if it's not happy, lamentful preaching. (laughs) 